0: Welcome to Moments That Rock, a proud member of the Pantheon group of podcasts and home to a plethora of wonderful music-based podcasts. And so, regular listeners to this podcast will realise we're about stories and we're about storytellers, industry insiders, artists, managers, A&R people, anybody from uh, way back then. There are some archive interviews, if you dig back through previous shows, you'll be able to hear, but today we're going to go back and listen to part two from a couple of uh, really interesting people. One gentleman called John Webster, who ran Virgin Records uh, for quite a while, and both the retail and um, the industry side. And we're also going to hear from Ian McNabb, uh, Iceland Works founder and um, also solo artist. He's been going for 40-odd years. We had him on the show a while back, and we're going to finish off hearing um, some advice from him about um, what he did in the pandemic and stuff, and uh, growing up in music and where he's going from here. So more from Ian coming in a short while. But we'll start it all off with John Webster.
1: I started to meet managers and I didn't really know up until that point before I joined the record label, what a manager did. Sometimes they would come into the record shops that I managed and say, why haven't you got my record in stock or my band's record in stock? Um, And then we'd tell them, you know, that it was out of stock at the record label and then they'd go off and shout at the record label. Um, But then I, I, but I had met, I did meet managers and um, I met a man, two different managers, actually. First of all, there was one called Tony Smith, who had originally been a promoter. I went to a lot of his shows when I was at school and he had taken over managing Genesis, who I loved from a a really early age. And uh, anyway, he also managed Phil Collins. And when I took over the marketing department i had to put together a marketing plan for the release of the second phil collins album hello i must be going and he called me in and he and i sweated all night one night coming up with every idea that i could think of about how to make this record um as successful as the first one was and so i went to see him and i i think i sat there for about 45 minutes and told him Every single thing we were going to do, we were going to do shop displays and sweatshirts with hello on the front and I must be going on the back and just everything. And I hadn't missed a thing and he waited until I'd finished and then he said, what about the shop doors? And I said, what do you mean? He said, why have we got anything on the shop doors? Hello on, the, on a sticker on the front door and I must be going on the back when people left. He went, hmm. Yeah, that'll do. Um, But he became a very important part of my life after that because he managed Genesis and and Phil Collins. And throughout the 80s, Genesis and Phil Collins were never off the airwaves. uh, Became to, you know, both as band and Phil Solo became incredibly important to Virgin. Um, But he was... He was just the most inspiring, all-knowledgeable manager that I'd ever met, I think, at that point. And he was a great inspiration to me and scared me to death all the time. Um, But he just made you, as a record industry professional, be on your toes the whole time. In contrast, there was the manager of Simple Minds, a guy called Bruce Findlay who were a band that Virgin had signed after they'd been dropped by Arista and had taken them and were gradually, gradually growing them and each album became slightly bigger. And Bruce Finley, unlike Tony Smith, who used to scare the life out of me, was the opposite. He used to come in and encourage everyone and would speak nicely to everyone and would... Uh, go around and uh, make sure all the staff had tickets for the gigs and was just the exact opposite. He wasn't such a tough businessman, but he was a great people person. And Simple Minds were, in many ways, were the archetypal virgin band because we took them from nothing, well well, pretty much nothing, to headlining Wembley Stadium in 1989 and obviously still have a career today. And they were a band that, would um would just just motivate every single person in the company to to work go that extra mile for them Um, and when they when they um when they got to number one they uh with their first single that got to number one belfast child in 1989 they flew down from scotland and we had a fantastic uh lunch to celebrate and that will forever remain in my consciousness Unfortunately, I couldn't go to the Wembley show. I was on holiday at the time, but uh, I probably should have come back. Um, So that was fantastic all the way through the 80s. I also worked with um, UB40, who were uh, also from Birmingham, where I'd gone to university. Uh, They were a completely different bunch of guys, eight guys from Birmingham who formed... They were the band in the late 70s uh, and were very much ploughed their own furrow and did things their way and not the music industry way. They never moved to London like everyone else did. They stayed in Birmingham and they worked from there. And one of the great experiences of my life was going to South Africa with them in 1994. And they said they would never play South Africa, even though they were hugely successful in selling records there until Nelson Mandela was released. And after he released, we went there in 94 and played the most um, fantastic shows in uh, Durban, Cape Town and Johannesburg. Uh, They were a handful to deal with, a real handful. I remember Robin, the guitarist, coming down to tell me that they wanted to follow up the Labour of Love album, which was a massive worldwide hit, with a dub album. And we said, I said, why, you know, we went through this whole thing. I said, why are you putting out a dub album? No one's going to understand this. And he looked at me and he said, John, we're a collective. There was a vote. I lost. I think it's a crazy idea, but the majority of the band want to do it. So that's what we're doing. Uh, And it was uh, just a real eye-opener way of doing business. So after the now, that's what I call music. And then I worked on the B, with the BPI Council, which is the Record Industry Trade Body, and the Brit Awards were happened every year. And I always thought it was a bit... Um, it was the major labels, particularly, who tried to force their acts on the show. And I didn't really like this. I didn't really like the way it was, um, was organised. I suppose it's a bit like the criticism the Grammys has come in for lately... Um, so I came up with the idea of the Mercury Music Prize, which was to make a, a prize, just a vote by music business professionals, mostly journalists and media people, about what the album of the year was. And it was a very simple idea, um, and simple ideas are probably all, mostly the best and the easiest way to do things. And I knew that it wouldn't work if you tried to get a committee to organize it. So I went to the BPI and I said, I wanted to do this. And they said, uh, yeah, but who's gonna gonna sponsor it? Who's gonna pay for it? Go and raise the money. And I did, I went and raised the money. I found a couple of guys who helped me do it. And we got a sponsor and we launched it in 1992. And this year is the, um, what the 30th anniversary Uh, And it's been going ever since, from strength to strength. And people criticise it. People don't sometimes like the winner. But really, the winner is just focusing the attention on the top 10 or 12 albums that have come out in the year. It's probably the best thing I think I've I've ever really done, was to come up with that idea and to make it happen, and to make it happen independently of all the record labels. Uh, So Virgin went from strength to strength. And in 1992, Richard Branson decided he had enough and wanted money to run the airline and things like that. So he decided to sell up and he sold the company to EMI Records, which was the British company that had been around for a very, very long time, uh, for a billion dollars. And at that point, I knew it was going to change. I knew it was going to be very different. So at the end of that year, I decided to leave Virgin, my son had been born, and so I um, left. But and and did, and because I didn't want to work for a company that was run by accountants, because Virgin was never run by accountants, and EMI always was. So I left there, but I stayed a consultant working with Genesis and uh, Peter Gabriel. He was a fantastic guy to work with. Um, UB40 still until uh, two thousand and one. And that was the end of my recording music life. Uh, So there's been those highlights, Bruce Springsteen, Genesis, Peter Gabriel, uh, inventing now, inventing the Mercury Music Prize. And I've had a great time and I wouldn't have changed it for the world. And those were the moments that rocked my world. And that's my promised land.
0: Ah, excellent to hear. Mr. John Webster former virgin man who uh, spent most of his working uh, life at that label and um, the retail side of course he went and opened many shops known John for nearly 50 years now so I'm aware of his career but it's great to hear it just uh, recorded and listening to it back and kind of smiling my way through it Uh, the boy done well as they say and um, hopefully he's semi-retired now with a bit of luck Anyway, you're listening to Moments That Rock, I'm your host Tony McLeodis and uh, we have more to come after the break with Mr Ian McNabb, the founder of the Icicle Works and um, a real character in himself. Great storyteller and you'll hear some of what he's got to say including some advice for up-and-coming artists and how he has coped with the pandemic. And we know that hasn't been easy for many, many people. Uh, It's okay sitting in your living room and uh, recording, well not recording, playing live and asking for tips but uh, like we discussed, plenty of people have been doing that. And um, we are back to some kind of live situation at the moment. And, um, yeah, good advice from Ian. And also we discuss um, what the new normal is going to be
2: about live music and stuff. Anyway, that's back after the break.
0: Well, my special guest today, from a long, long time, way back then, Mr. Ian McNabb, originally from the of Works and uh, still Mr. Ian McNabb. Welcome, Ian. Hi, good, good to see you again. With the pandemic and everything changing and stuff, and you've been a performer for a long, long time in, um, you know, your own band and solo career and doing stuff acoustically and things. How have you gone on in this uh, quite weird two years?
2: Um, surprisingly enough, tell me, it, it, once I accepted what was on the horizon. I dealt with it quite well. I, I didn't suddenly fall apart thinking, oh, my God, what am I going to do? Um, it was like, OK, so you, you can't gig. So what else can you do? So I basically installed a load of recording equipment in my house downstairs and started recording all the songs that I was, I was going to be recording, you know, as well. So I concentrated on that, ended up doing a double album. It would have only been a single When I say double album, I've always made albums that were too long, but I've never made albums that were two albums that, you know. So I did that and then I did another album, which was re-records of the original Icicle Works demos, because it was 40 years since we did them and they'd never been recorded properly, so that was fun, could still hit the high notes, which I was quite pleased about because it was all written quite high and fast in those days. And then things started looking like we were going to be able to return to the live arena, and then they weren't again. It was ready, steady, no. That was about a year ago. Uh, So all my dates have been moved, and they start in two weeks. So hopefully, fingers crossed, it looks like we're okay for those to go ahead. So, you know, you just – as Michael Caine said in one of his autobiographies, when when bad things happen or negative things happen – Use the deficit. I use the deficit. So you find the time that you've lost and you find something creative or something engaging, uh, like helping other people, for instance. That's something that one tends to forget to do when you're zooming down the rock and roll highway or the highway of life. Um, So, yeah, you know, to be honest with you, it's coming up two years now since my last gig in london and i I remember we were all sitting around going apparently there's this thing coming and they're going to shut everything down and we were like no it'll be okay and we had gigs stretching up to the end of the year so but here we are and you know you only remember the good things don't you
0: you know wisdom comes with age and obviously you're a let's say a seasoned professional and I think important with a musician is resilience because there's going to be ups and downs and there's going to be things out of your control yeah there's things where you know you have bad management you fall out with your record company and shit happens you know um but when it comes to something like this that's totally out of your control you have to find a way and um uh, you know, I got a bit sick of seeing a, a bunch of people just coming on and playing for tips on Facebook, because that's kind of lazy. And and how many times can you just go on and, and bung five dollars into a kitty and then move on to the next performance? And
2: well, it's almost you know like what, I was a lot of people did that. A lot of people I know and I've got absolutely respect for them for doing that. Um, it's not me, you know, Um and a lot of them would do it, like, every Friday or Saturday when they would have normally been out gigging. And I just thought, it, it doesn't feel right to be doing that every week and asking people to throw money in a jar. You know, I, did, I, I didn't i get these stripes on my shoulder by sitting in front of a goddamn computer screen <laughs> asking people for money, you know? So, uh, so I didn't do that, and I was working on the basis that... Um, you know, if I don't do that, maybe they'll be even more pleased to see me when I do actually return to the to the circuit. So, well, no disrespect to anybody that did it, but it gets a bit repetitive doing that. I think, as you said,
0: you know, you really need to sit down and and gather your thoughts and think. Okay, this is where I'm at. This is what's happening. Is that my control? What do I do? You know, did you yeah, find yeah. that um, creatively um, with having that nowhere to go, like everybody yeah. else? Did you find um, a surge of energy creatively with your writing?
2: Yeah, I mean, I've always got a surge of energy with regards to writing. I've always got a, you know, I I don't feel alive unless I'm walking around wrestling with a couplet. You know, that's uh, something that's always there. But certainly because the other thing is that playing live just doesn't take up the time of you doing the gig. You know, it's like, I mean, I only play at weekends. But on a Tuesday or a Wednesday, I'm starting to think, right, what songs am I going to do? Do I know all the words? Um, if we're staying in hotels, I've got to sort that out. You know, the, the kind of arranging side of it, changing strings, you know, that that's that's part of it. And because I didn't have any of that to do, I had to think of something else to do. So it probably did force me to pick up the guitar a bit more often than I would have done. Um, like I say, you know, use using the, the deficit. But I, I know a lot of friends of mine were going crackers because they, they weren't able to go and sit in front of people and, and perform and get the love back and all that. And, um, I, I, you know, I don't really... I mean, I love that and I love going through that. I love the process of it. And it is, is a great thing to do. But I don't need that all the time. You know, and I, I was quite happy to step away from it. And, you know, what? One at certain points, you know, because let's face it, it's been, it's got very dark in the past couple of years. About We still don't really know where we're going to end up. I mean, I think we all entertain the possibility that maybe we were not going to be able to go back to doing gigs. I know, uh, you know, I mean, some of those, I mean, I'm an old boy now, but some of those older guys like, you know, the Stones and McCartney and, all of those cats i mean they're a couple of years off 80 now and they those guys do big three-hour shows with the whole thingy and it's a big deal and i bet some of them are thinking that maybe they've done the last gig you know i know mccartney said that but um here we are it, you know we're back and it looks like it's gonna happen and it it'll be like uh it'd be an interesting experience to get back on the horse and and see how it feels, you know.
0: When you say we, um, you go out with with musicians as well and you're a band.
2: Most of the time I do solo shows uh, from my point of view, economically, financially, you know, I can play to 250, 200 people a night with my acoustic and I don't, it's not all quiet, you know, I have an electric and we have some gizmos and stuff. So it's a big, big old, big old noise. Um, that's my bread and butter that I do most of the time. And a couple of times a year, I'll do a small run of dates as the icicle works, because it brings more people through the door. I mean, as as crazy it may se- as it may seem, you know, if I go out as Ian McNabb and band, at least half the people stay away because they don't think they're going to wear Evangeline, you know. And that's that's the way it is in, in some people's minds. I always re- remember when uh, Pink Floyd broke up and Roger Waters went out on tour with his first album and he, and he was playing sheds and not filling them. And the other guys went out as Pink Floyd and they were filling stadiums, playing his songs. A brand name is a big thing, you know.
0: That's happened a lot of the times where people have kind of, you know, not been happy about it either, have they? Somebody taking the name away. Um... Even if it's the person who decided to leave, he doesn't want the other people to go and use it, which is kind of like you know petty squabbling and things. But that's, I think, that's a musicians' thing at times. You know, it's uh, they need to kind of get their house in order. I always, I always think that, you know, that and with my own experiences of bands like, you know, that it's easy to mention now, but when I was starting working with them, they were nobody. You know, you too, but. The thing is, they had ambition and they had resilience and all those things, but they put the house in order. So they decided when they were kind of waiting to play the school disco when they were like 17, 18, that they were going to share all the publishing, you know, which is easy to do when there's no money involved. But when you get in a situation when the money comes in and coming from Manchester, a.k.a. Stone Roses the Smiths, you know, it's what splits a lot of bands up because there's a little resentment sets in, you know, but it's kind of it like, well, should we have I spoken th- about this before?
2: I think you'll find, I, I, I certainly know that was a factor with regards to the Icicle Works, um, but I wrote all the songs. Yeah. I, I, and the other guys did, We they arranged my songs, but it was arrangements, you know, and the, I, it, they didn't, write the song and that's always the big, the big argument. If you if you want it to be a band and you want to stay together like you two, like REM, uh the the Echo and the Bunny Men did that and there was a lot of resentment towards the end. And that's why the original line broke up the way it did. And now it's just uh, Mac and Will. If you do want to keep a band going, I think that's a, a great thing to do. I'm a mate of mine um, Dave uh, from the uh, the Zootons, Dave McCabe, uh, he writes all the songs for the Zootons. He wrote Valerie, which huh? obviously became a worldwide smash because Amy Winehouse covered it. But, it, I mean, you know, without getting into specifics, I know that he shares some of his publishing with the other members of the band, which is why they're now just doing another album and why they're happy to go out and do festivals. And that's you, you've got to do that. And I, I get that, you know. If you're going to use that band name and you you want the same people on stage because it makes everybody feel comfortable, it makes the audience feel like they're part of something that's been going a long time, um, that's what you've got to do.
0: And it, it, it's funny, isn't it? Because when we came up with the idea of tribute bands, it's a genius because all those people who kind of don't do anymore, somebody else goes out and does their songs and they kind of perfect the act, so to speak, you know. Uh, I experienced a couple of things myself, like going to see that, the you know, you mentioned the Pink Floyd, like the Australian yeah. Pink Floyd, there's the Brit Floyd. And I yeah. went with my wife and a friend of ours was going and she said, oh, I'm going to see. And I kind of didn't sound really interested, you know. And then the boring fart, old fart in you comes out because you've seen the Pink Floyd, you know, the real yes. Pink Floyd. Yeah, the real. And then when it was time to get the tickets, I said, well, you know, we'll get these like two cheapest seats on the back row. And she said, well, why? I said, well, why would you want to see a band that isn't the Pink Floyd? Up oh, close. Why don't we go on the I, back and watch the light show and listen to I, it
2: and close our off. eyes? I always say, with the, I think with a good tribute band, or even more so with a not so good tribute band, you need a couple of lagers inside you, right, right at the back with all the lights, because you're not up close to Dave Gilmore. You, you're up close to, you know... Jimmy Smith's, you know, who's from (laughs) Oldham. And the closer you get, the less it's Floyd, you know. But uh, I I did a gig once with uh, Dan Bird from the Georgia Satellites, and we were just doing our solo things in London about 10 years ago, and he's a a great guy. And uh, we got into a a discussion, and he said that there's a Georgia Satellites tribute band, and they go around playing all the same places that he does, and they pull more people. (laughs) (laughs) Because of the Georgia Satellites tribute band and yeah. it's just Dan Bird. And people go, yeah, but he's not going to play all Georgia Satellites songs. He's going to play his new album, you know. Yeah. It's crazy. You really I've- do have to make it so obvious to people, unless you're the hot new thing, you know. If you're the hot new thing, you can pull up in a town, play the enormous. Dome, And they will pay a fortune for tickets, they don't mind looking at screens, they'll pay for parking, the whole thing. Whereas if you're not the hot thing, um, you have to go to them, which is when you have to go and play in Otley to to 50 people, you know. And and you have to have a, a poster that says, Ian McNabb of Icicle Works. Hits include playing, da, 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 will sign merchandise after show. Well, yeah, I mean, so you've just got to really let them know that they're getting VFM, you know. Yeah. You
0: give me, have you inspired me and given me a few ideas here? It's a bit, I I'm, can't play anything because I'd go out as Icicles
2: Reworked. <laughs> <laughs> well, let, why don't you do that and see how you do? I'll just go out a cappella.
0: Great storytellers are Ian. Uh, that was Ian McNabb telling stories about the pandemic and what to do, or what he did, should I say. We've got a little bit more, I asked to asked him about um, uh, his time, you know, uh, taking on America, so to speak, but I'm going to save that for another day. That'll be it for today. And before that, of course, was John Webster, former uh, Virgin Supremo, telling tales about, um, well, not tales, telling stories <laughs> about his time at Virgin Records, and the people he worked with on both sides and how much he enjoyed it, which is great to hear. I'm going to finish this uh, podcast today with a little snippet from my book that's coming out. Um, it's called Moments That Rock, same name as the podcast, and it's full of stories about um, my career in the music industry. So check this one about um, <clears throat> losing my car with Sting. While we're on the subject of classic cock-ups, I had another. Well, I had several, if the truth be known, but I don't want to this, turn this read into war and peace. During the early 80s, I was setting up my independent promotion company in Manchester, and we were working with A&M Records and handling their entire artist roster. This included people like Joe Jackson, Joan Trading, Squeeze, etc., and arguably the biggest band in the world at that time, The Police. Great as it was to have them, it was equally as important for us to play our part and achieve maximum exposure. In fact, we promoted their third album, Ghost in the Machine, in 1981, and then what turned out to be their final and most successful album, Synchronicity. This became one of the biggest-selling albums of the 80s, selling over 10 million copies, and included the hugely successful single, Every Breath You Take. It was a very exciting period for ourselves, the label, and of course the band, even though the bitching had become too much for them, and after all, the adulation, they'd split up, with Sting going on to have a hugely successful solo career. As well as promoting the album, Sting was also filming June with Patrick Stewart, which was due to come out the following year. I found it hilarious that when they told Patrick, who was co-starring in the movie, he had no idea who Sting was. He would never heard of him. Which is hard to believe, as his face was plastered on so many teenagers' bedroom walls back then. I don't think Patrick Stewart could have got out that much. As part of the promotional campaign, I had get them booked onto a TV show, a national TV show, in fact, called Cheggers Plays Pop. The show was presented by a jovial Liverpudlian by the name of Chief Keith Jequin. The show went out at 4.30, a time slot they used to refer to as children's TV. Sting's schedule was very full, but he had a small window which allowed him to fly up from Manchester, from London, to record the show, and then get back down to London immediately afterwards to continue filming. My plan was to get the other two, Stuart Copeland and Andy Summers, to get an earlier flight so they could run through the rehearsals with someone standing in for Sting. It was standard practice for everyone performing lip-sync, as in mime, to the track in those days. The rehearsals were really for the crew to get the right camera angles. I met the other two down at the BBC on Oxford Street in Manchester and watched them do the run-through before getting into my car to take the 30-minute drive to Manchester Airport to pick up Sting. I drove into the multi-storey car park, locked the car and took the elevator down to the arrivals area. No sooner had I got out of the elevator than I looked up at the arrivals board to see his flight had just landed. Perfect! Had timed the trip to perfection. Then, a few minutes later, the automatic doors swung open, and there he was, Sting in a sling. We said our hellos and generally chatted as we walked through the main concourse and back to the elevator to go and retrieve the car. Three minutes later, we'd be in the BBC studios and ready to start filming. Everything was going according to plan, and we were right on schedule to get him back to London on time. Or so I thought. We climbed into the elevator, and as Sting glanced across at me, finger poised to hit the button and said, ''What level are you parked on?'' I froze. I would no idea where I'd left the parked car, where I'd parked the car. So there you have it, me on one level and Sting on another, wandering around in a packed car park, looking for my car. Fortunately, we found it in time, drove a little faster than anticipated down to the studios, arriving just in time. I got back to the airport a couple of hours later, and it all worked out fine, as he hadn't lost any filming time back in London. It all worked out in the end, thankfully. Sting was cool about it, and we were able to have a laugh on the way back to the airport. Funny, really, ever since that day, I've always managed to remember what level I parked my car on. That's me with a little uh, snippet from my forthcoming book, Moments That Rock, It Should be called Moments That You Cock Up. Never mind. Um, I might do some more in weeks to come. Anyway, that's it from us. We'll be back um, very shortly with another podcast with other people. My name's Tony Michael Edis. You're uh, welcome on the Pantheon Group of Podcasts. There's plenty more to listen to, so don't just listen to this. Go and check them all out. And we'll see you very soon.